Welcome to the Wealth Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, John Lawson, Senior Wealth Advisor at Asante Capital Management and Sauna Family Office. We're always looking for unique ways to educate our client families and be introduced to new clients. At Sauna Family Office, we help business owners and affluent families navigate the complexities of wealth through a variety of wealth management and family enterprise oversight services. Today, we're speaking with Bob Swanson, Senior Vice President and Co-Head of Equities and Portfolio Management at CI Global Asset Management. Bob is a seasoned professional with over 40 years in investment management and a perfect guest to guide us through a recap of last year and to gaze into that crystal ball for what to expect in 2024. Welcome, Bob, and thank you for being our guest today. Uh, quick question first, where in the world are you today? Today, I am in Boston, which is which is where our office has always been. Um, and I know most everybody else has been relocated and in Toronto and elsewhere. But, um, you know, I've always been in, you know, since I've been at CI, I've always been in our Boston office, although I spend, you know, I have spent the vast majority of my time in Canada. But this is where I am today. And the big question, because we on the West Coast are... Uh a little finicky about our weather. What's it like there in Boston for you? It's pretty miserable in the wind and the rain and, the, and then the temperatures drop. So um, we're not quite as bone chilling as you as I've seen out West, but it's coming. It's, it's, it's been migrating uh, further East. And so I know we've got some colder days ahead of us. So crazy uh, weather patterns all throughout the continent. And um, I think there's more to come with that regard. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll just keep the heat up and uh, and get on with our uh, show today. So, uh, um, as we talked about, uh, what we're really looking for is kind of past, present, and future of uh, the global equity markets from you. So, markets, both stocks and bonds, uh, mm -hmm. ended up being in uh, investors' favor uh, by the end of 2023. Some people said it uh, uh, it was a great year in the last two months. Um, were you surprised by the year end returns or surprised how we got there? Yeah, I, I would say I was surprised how we got there. I mean, if it, it's funny because, you know, we're doing a year end or year forward looking uh, analysis now. But a year ago, when we were having these conversations, it was, you know, we were thinking the Fed was going to begin easing and that the markets would renormalize in the first half of the year. And and uh, you know, smooth out for the remainder of the year. Of course, none of that occurred. We the Fed continued, and the central banks continued to tighten rates, and beyond what everybody expected. And we didn't get the the rate cuts, and weighed heavily on the market until really the final two months, the final six weeks of the year, when when the, again the expectations for additional rate cuts be, you know became you know the, the the current thinking, and you saw the markets respond to that. So. It's. Uh, I, I think last year took most investors a little bit by surprise. Certainly, the strong finish was uh, was welcome, but not widely anticipated. Yeah, and and in that uh, mix and and what happened with all the the different uh, tug of war of emotions going on, uh, what's been referred to as the magnificent seven, were a big part of that story. Um, will and can that trend continue uh and how does ai factor into those stocks yeah i would say magnificent seven was like the only story for the vast majority of the year last year in fact there was you know 
throughout various points in time, we had the market down and those stocks up strongly. And so there was a huge bifurcation in, in the overall market. And that really persisted until probably December, maybe even the last couple of weeks of, of, of the year. So I, you know, can it continue? I think the big seven are still going to be dominant forces in, in the marketplace. As you said, a lot of it was AI related. And I think AI is going to continue to be a, a big story into 2024 and likely beyond. But I don't think the magnitude that we had from those, the contribution we saw from those seven will be, you know, nearly the magnitude that we had in the last year. I think what we're going to see is a little more <clears throat> broadening out of the marketplace. Some of those stocks obviously had tremendous performers as a group. They are up, you know, almost almost uh, triple digits. And I think what we're going to see this year is a little more normalization within the marketplace. They're not going away. They're still there. There's still factors. AI is still there. But we're beginning to see more and more players come into AI. We're beginning to see those applications spread out a little bit. The supply chain problems that we experienced forced, you know, some people into a few players like Nvidia, for instance, if we if you listen to Nvidia, their books are full for 2024, so they're done. So if you want, you know, if you're if you're uh, uh, looking to you know get more access to AI, you're going to have to go elsewhere and find other vendors and suppliers for some of those services, software chip services. And I think that's what we'll see this year is it will be it'll broaden out into you know a wider distribution of providers of the of, of those uh, inputs and services for AI. So the result of that is. Yes, they're still there. They're still going to be important in the marketplace, but I think their role is going to diminish a little bit relative to everybody else. Um, and we should see a little bit more of a broadening of the marketplace throughout this year. Okay, so two, two things I think I hear that you're saying there is um, there's two pieces to AI. Uh, one is those that uh, drive the AI and in terms of the the um, making it possible. And yep. then there are the others that utilize AI right. to create efficiencies within their business. Yeah. And I, and I think that's, that's where the, the, you know, the big opportunity is, is coming from. And initially uh, the, people looked at the, the big platforms. They said, who has a platform of users that could use it? So, you know, Facebook type of a, uh, company where they've got a huge database and a huge clientele, you know, what could they do? What efficiencies could they gain? And, and how could they optimize their, their platform utilizing AI? But I think we're going to, we will spread out and beyond that into, you know, it's certainly more sectors, more companies in the marketplace. And again, because everybody's looking for it and there has been a dearth of supply of that, which is why those, you know, handful of companies did so well, you know, we, we are going to see other participants, uh, enter the enter the arena here, and and I think that provides a broader set of opportunities. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, that's par for the course. Uh, history tells us you uh, you open something up, and that makes opportunity uh, for lots of people. And uh, yeah. uh, sometimes people come out and surprise you. Well, I, I mean, if, if we go back uh, last couple of years, Nvidia was one of those that came right. out of nowhere, so to speak. Uh, right. Um, what about, uh, I think the second thing that I heard you say in there is that what you're looking more for is yes, the big seven, the magnificence of them there, they're going to be there and they'll probably continue to, uh, perform not at the same pace, but it's much more of, they left the rest of the market behind. So the good companies in, in that broad market, you're looking for them to catch up. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, this reminds me a little bit, John, of 1999, 2000, as you know, as Y2K was coming. And remember back then it was Cisco. Cisco was the NVIDIA of today. And, um, you know, everybody was jamming into a handful of stocks. And those stocks were fantastic performance, <clears throat> excuse me, and the rest of the market languished. But what we saw post, you know, 2000, once we got into 2000, we saw a broadening of the marketplace. Those big leaders kind of, you know, kind of faded off into the sunset a little bit. In fact, Cisco, you know, may not, I mean, it's been sort of away for a couple of decades now. Um, and we saw small caps, we saw the rest of the S&P, you know, the other 495 companies, and in this case, 493 companies, you know, did a lot better. And so we saw performance, the breadth of performance improved tremendously. And so, uh, you know, we, we saw we just saw many more participants and the, the big winners of the prior year, prior couple of years, just sort of faded in, in, in terms of importance. And the returns that we, the big returns were made elsewhere in the marketplace. And I suspect we're going to see uh, a, a bit of a repeat. You know, it doesn't repeat, you know, history doesn't repeat identically, right? But it rhymes. And what we saw this year, even if you look at the equal weighted S&P 500 versus the cap weighted S&P, which is dominated by those seven companies, the performance differential is was huge. It was a two standard deviation event, you know, just a tremendous difference. And I would, you know, I suspect we'll be getting to see a little bit of a mean reversion. We'll see the rest of the market catch up. And maybe those guys will, they don't necessarily have to pull back, but the rest of the market will catch up relative to where they've been. So, you know, yeah. that, that I, I would, you know, it feels like the market's already beginning to sort that out and, and head that direction, at least for the first couple of weeks anyway here. Yeah. <laughs> first couple of weeks don't make a year. We've learned. No, that. no, that's for sure. We've, we've learned that many times over. I, uh, to, to your point, uh, going back to 1999, I remember it well, and uh, everybody was chasing that dot-com side, uh, and they just talked about the the end of uh, bricks and mortar, and uh, I, I, the, the, the big one that I remember is uh, just here in Canada specifically, but it was uh, North America, um, they, they hated banks. Uh, yet banks weren't making any less money. Uh, right. It just, they weren't the hot thing. And then in 2000, when the market caved, uh, we actually did really well because we were uh, more diversified out and had a good holding in banks and uh, we did really well. So yeah. similar, I think, is what you're saying. I, I would I would agree with you there, John. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, we've touched on it a little bit, but uh, um, what, other areas in the global markets, uh, do you see promise? And uh, uh, the the flip side of that question, um, maybe some reason for caution. Yeah. So let's start with the S and P five hundred. Like I said, I think the other four hundred ninety three hold promise to to do well. And you know, for like I said, for vast majority of of 2023, a lot of those stocks were in negative territory and finally started to come alive at the end of the year. So I, I think there's there's probably a little bit of a, there's a catch-up trade there. And, and, and maybe investors focus, get away from those seven and begin to look elsewhere. Um, as I said, we're beginning to see it. You know, look, look at GE. I mean, you know, GE, you know, originally I said, you know, it's your father's stock. No, it's your grandfather's stock and, and IBM. Look at the performance of IBM and GE and some of these you know, companies that have been long gone or, or so you thought, and all of a sudden, you know, they're coming back into, 
into uh, favor with the investors. So I, I do think it's already beginning to happen where we're seeing other segments of the market. Small caps, uh, both in the US and Canada, massive underperformers these last several years. And similar to, you know, post 2000, small caps did well in, you know, in that subsequent time frame as well. So I just think that the valuation discounts uh, for a lot of these companies have, have really been depressed because people have just completely exited them. There's been no interest in, in the space for, for such a long time. So I think where there's been, you know, that void of interest that, that begins to create the opportunity, but there's, there's also, you know, if we start with the bigger picture and say, okay, I think, you know, let's call it the equal weighted or the rest of the S&P, the small cap market in the U.S. If you go into Europe, I think everybody's been shying away from Europe, certainly for the last couple of years. But the European markets did actually very well last year. I mean, they, they held up uh, uh, quite nicely. The area that I, I looking at and seeing promise have been adding to is Japan. Uh, you know, Japan, the last time people were interested in Japan was probably when the Japanese investors bought Pebble Beach Golf Course back in 1990 or whenever it was, right? I mean, that was the peak of the Japanese market. And nobody, nobody's been there for you know three decades now. So, But there's been some transformational things taking place uh, and structural changes in Japan with regard to what they want to do with their companies in order to get into various indices. And companies are beginning to focus on profitability. And it's, of course, that wasn't part of the, the culture before. And so now you've got a a segment of the companies that are looking at returns and profitability and and uh, they're you know incredibly cheap relative to those attributes um, you know as compared when compared to the rest of the world. So I think there's some opportunities there. but there's also within, you know you always say the you know it's it's a it's a it's a collection of stocks. it's not the market, the s and p, the performance of the s and p really wasn't the s and p was a handful of companies. So when you look at the segments of each of those markets, there's there's opportunities within lots of opportunities. You know, think of the big underperformers last year, telecom, utilities, the telecoms, you know, Verizon, AT&T, even, you know, TELUS in, in Canada, uh, big underperformers. And I think there's some opportunity there. A lot of the spending cycles are behind them. And now it's time for them to, you know, to, to generate some cash flow and, and do something uh, productive with it. So there's, there's opportunities in those segments. The big story, another big story last year were the you know, the uh, diabetes, weight loss drugs, the GLP-1 drugs we talked about, Novo Nordisk overseas, Eli Lilly in the States. Look at the rest of the healthcare space did nothing. The rest of the pharmaceuticals were negative for the most part on the year. So as we as we look at these things, there's, there's companies that are actually doing a good job and are growing, uh, but they weren't the hot stock. And so everybody just left them and, and went into, you know, clamored into, you know, the big story stocks. And that has created really a lot of opportunities in many various segments of the marketplace, not only within, you know, the U.S. and Canada, abroad, you know, sectors, countries we, we hadn't paid attention to much like Japan. And, you know, so I think there there's, that's where the opportunity is. Um, you mentioned risks. <clears throat> Of course, there's risk with all this. The you know the risk is there, there, there's a there's a couple of you know there is the geopolitical risk which if the tensions continue you know the the of course we've got the the wars going on and the you know the tragedies and atrocities associated with that the geopolitical risk certainly between the U.S. and China 
and restricting technology and the trading of technology and the bifurcation of companies there. You know, those are those are big risks that can, can deal, you know, derail this whole globalization theme that has been building and accumulating for the past several decades. So is there a risk that we we become more nationalistic as opposed to global in, in our trade? And, and what would that suggest? There's a there's a big risk with that. I, you know, I would I would say that's um yeah, you know, we don't talk a lot about it, but I think the geopolitical risks are heating up and and uh, it's, it's beginning to impact trade and, and, and those relationships. And if that continues, that that could really derail a lot of, you know, a lot of investment theses that we, you know, that I just discussed moving into these other areas. So that that would certainly be a concern. Um, and I think China, you know, last year when we started the year, I think everybody was kind of thinking, OK, China was slow in coming out of COVID. Remember, they were more restricted with their COVID policies, and then they began to ease a little bit, but not like the rest of the world. And everybody thought 2023 was the year that China was going to you know, kind of regain its footing and, and uh, gain some traction. Did not happen. Um, and so that continues to be a risk into 2024 if, you know, if China continues to decline or slow down, as we've been seeing, you know, that's going to weigh on global economics and and uh, in global trade as well. So that's another issue that, you know, we've, we've got to pay attention to. Certainly optimistic that the, the policy changes we're beginning to see out of China will, will gain some traction and we'll see a bit of recovery. But right now the trends don't support that. And so that's that's something we have to, you know, you've got to keep in the back of your head that there could be ongoing problems there that maybe they don't turn it around as quickly as is anticipated. Right, all right. Okay, so then I've got to ask the big question uh, that so many clients are bringing up with me and um, we're, we're likely to hear, <laughs> we know this is a given, a lot more uh, noise regarding the uh, U.S. elections. And uh, oh, I do yeah. uh, categorize it as noise, um, but it uh, we also can't ignore the fact, uh, at least in the short term, it affects markets uh because of the emotional swings that it can create um your thoughts yeah i i agree with you john i think you know i, I as i think back over the last couple of decades there's been a number of what i call abnormal environments you know we had you know y2k in 2000 and and then we had the you know, great financial crisis in 2008 and then the fed came in and you know and central bankers, and they took unusual policies. And so that was very disruptive and changed the way investments happen, really, the way, the way people think about investing. And then we had the COVID cycle, and same thing with COVID, you know, the world shut down, and then it gets flooded with liquidity and reopens up and too much growth and all this stuff. And I, I scribbled into my notes, and, you know, one of the other abnormalities that occurred between uh, the GFC and COVID was Trump. And, you know, becoming president, I mean, that was, it shook everything up. And, um, and to this day, it's going to continue to shake things up, right? So he just had a good showing in the Iowa caucus last night. Uh, so he's, he's the front runner for the Republican nomination. And, you know, that, that just brings with it all, you know, a whole litany of, uh, of uh, things that could royal the markets and, and bring, you know, volatility along with it. And so you, I, I I agree wholeheartedly with you. I mean, this is something that can just add disruption to the market. Of course, he's disruptive in, in you know in the way he approaches things. Of course, 
and his commentary and what he does for you know, geopolitical tensions and how he's going to handle conflict. Uh, and that that can definitely ruffle the markets. And, and I, I, I would suspect we're in for some volatile times as as we, you know, for the next 11 months, as we approach election season, 10 months as we get into election season. So I would agree that's going to be there. Uh, but it's also going to be their post-election in all likelihood. So, you know, even once there's a new president elected, you know, depending on is it, you know, Trump or Biden or somebody else, there's going to be, you know, what, what does that mean for policy development and and uh, and such? So, yes, there's there's uh, there's going to be volatility associated with, you know, is any of it structural remains to be seen, you know, big you know, tax cuts, you know, could, could you know, are, are going to influence things and policy changes. But you know, most of it is noise, but that noise and you know creates a lot of consternation with investors and adds to volatile markets. So that's the unfortunate part. But we've been dealing with we've been dealing with some crazy times in the last couple of decades, and maybe it's always been that way. I suppose you know, in 1987 we had the big crash and whatever. So there's there's always something, and you know, yeah. That, yeah. that that comes along. So it's. Uh, it, you know, just add it to the repertoire of things to be concerned with. You know, the, what we have to deal with from a risk management perspective as we as we structure and manage our portfolios. Yeah, a colleague of ours uh, in the U.S., Nick Murray, uh, love yeah. his uh, his uh, uh, comment or quote. Uh, he calls it the apocalypse du jour. Uh, <laughs> there's every day there's something that somebody says is going to end the world, but miraculously. We're still here. Uh, we tend to move forward and yeah. uh, uh, do well. And it really does go uh, same thing with uh, elections, whether it's in Canada, whether it's uh, uh, in the States or different countries in the world. It uh, also it, it's disruptive at times, but there's always new opportunities that come out of it. So it's right. just a matter of staying on the ball and seeing what what's going to benefit from the changes. Yeah. You know, it's very interesting because one of the things I've been thinking of, John, is that um, time, like, people don't talk about time, but, uh, you know, corporations or CEOs, they have, if given the, the amount of, you know, su sufficient time, they can change the way they're doing, they do things. You know, we as investors, if you know, given enough time, we can restructure the portfolios or how we're, how we're positioning ourselves. You can do the same thing with your clients if given enough time. And over time, you do, you, you tend to get the wiggles out and you're back on back on track. And, uh, you know, we've had these, a lot of dislocations just in the last three years, but I've said, we've also had time. Now we've, we've had three years elapse for this and people have been able to understand how to adapt to these changes and, and the challenges that they face and are making, making changes to, you know, to counteract that or, or to optimize or, or take the opportunity, uh, um, you know, given, given that disruption. So, Time is uh, is an important healer, and I think it will be for the markets as well. And so, as we work through all these dislocations that we've had, you know, given enough time, we we get back on sort of get back on that trend line. And I think I'm going to say it feels like 2024 is going to be one of those years where we can we get back and we get back on trend and uh, and and get things moving. Of course, the you know the the, the election noise is, is, is will be ever present, but um, everything else. We've had enough time to deal with, you know, that we had enough time to deal with the low interest rates being lower. We've had time to deal with interest rates being raised. We've had time with, you know, interest rates normal. You know, now we get back on track. You know, let's get back to the game of investing.
Outstanding. Okay. So then uh, it, when uh, when we're sitting here a year from now, what are, what are we going to be talking about? <laughs> well, we'll still be talking about the elections, unfortunately, a year from now, I think, but uh, th that'll still be there. You know, what I hope we're not talking about is is greater financial, you know, geopolitical turmoil. And you know, I hope that's not part of it. And, and you know, further bifurcation and, the, you know, of, of just individual behaviors. I mean, it's it, certainly in the States and elsewhere, it's becoming so polarized. I'm hoping that those aren't the big topics next year. What I'm hoping is that we're, that we're discussing, you know, sort of the return to normalcy. Uh, that you know the, the the central banks have come and they've normalized interest rates and okay, I get it. Like I I don't know how I didn't know how to think with zero percent interest rates. I didn't know how to value any. I didn't know how to value a bond or a stock when interest rates are negative. Like that that was just completely foreign to me. Now four or five percent, I get it. I, like I'm comfortable with that. It makes sense. I can add up the sub components and come up to four or five percent. You know, equity valuations have gone from 20 to 30 or 29, 30 times, you know, back down to that 15 to 20 range. A lot of companies, the vast majority of them are back to their normal range. So we've normalized interest rates. We've normalized equity valuations with the exception of a few of them. You know, so things are getting back into normal. And I, I, I certainly hope by the end of next year, what we're saying, we're going to look back in the rear view of mirror and say, you know what, that was a, that was a, that was like, I get it. That was a perfectly normal year. Like, you know, stocks did eight to ten percent. Bonds, you got four or five, six percent return out of your bonds. Balanced portfolios did what they're supposed to do. Diversification was the way to go. Whereas what we've been, you know, what the market's been concentrating, concentrating, concentrating as a result of all these policy changes and you know these abnormal conditions in the market. What I hope we're speaking about is the return to normalcy in the market, and then you know, back to the way we used to invest. And uh, I guess yeah. maybe that's, maybe that's just a, a you know, a dream for 2024, but uh, I, I think we're due. I think we're, I think we're due for a, a normal year. We haven't had one in, in a long time. So uh, yeah. that's what I'm, that's what I'm banking on. And I hope we don't have to be talking about all these other things, which would be, uh, you know, certainly less positive. Well, my, my answer to the, your, to your answer is amen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so let's do some quick comments. Uh, sure. uh, you've touched on some of these. Um, first one, uh, interest rate outlook. Yeah. So I know that the, the uh, consensus forecast calls for lower interest rates, maybe, you know, in the next quarter or so. I don't see it. I, you know, I would say, I think maybe we get a couple of cuts, but they're going to be very back end loaded. Again, as I said, the Fed stated they're, they're, they, they wanted to normalize rates. They've normalized them. Four to five percent. That's normal in the historical context, I don't see big changes in interest rates. Okay, gold. Gold, I think, you know, could could move up a little bit. Uh, it's sort of come alive after a decade of being uh, dormant. And, you know, now that we finally poked above the 1800 mark, you know, maybe that raises the upside. That could be due to lingering inflation. And if we get a little bit of easing in interest rates, you know, easing in interest rates, persistency of inflation, you know, could be a decent recipe for gold. Okay. And thoughts on currency. Uh, and I'll expand that. Uh, Canadian US, uh, uh, Euro, uh, and then you talked about uh, Japan, yen. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think uh, let's start with Canadian US. I do think that the Bank of Canada uh, probably needs to lighten rates uh, a little bit more so than the Fed. 
So that's going to be the big differential. You know, the interest rate differential is going to be the big driver of the currencies. That would suggest a little weakness in the Canadian dollar vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. dollar. Now, having said that, we've had a pretty good run in the U.S. dollar, a huge run in the U.S. dollar over the last decade, 15 years. Um, if, in fact, the U.S. begins to lose its dominance in the global scale, the rest of the world weighing on the U.S. On the US dollar you know, could bode well for the Canadian dollar. But I think from an interest rate differential perspective, I think rates in Canada probably need to come down uh, maybe a little quicker and a little more magnitude than, than in the U.S., and that would favor U.S. dollar over Canadian dollar, all else considered. European rates, uh, I, I think Europe is in a little slower position. Obviously, there's more going on with the conflicts over there. So I, I don't see a big increase in rates, certainly in, in, out of Europe. Um, but, uh, you know, if anything, the rate cycle there may be easier than, in, in again, in back in the U.S. And so that would lend, you know, that would lend further support to the U.S. dollar. Japan, we've been expecting them to uh, change their policy a little bit, which would which would cause an increase in rates. We haven't seen it, and they've been they've been keeping rates and interest rates low in Japan. Uh, so I would say more of the same there, unless there's a, a need for big policy change in, in Japan. Let's just assume the uh, uh, the Bank of Japan keeps things as is, and and you know maybe steady as we go against the yen. But it, I don't see big appreciation in the end in that environment. Okay, on your answer for Europe, I'm going to split it uh, um, to uh, uh, pound sterling. Yeah. And euro, do you see any difference, or do you see the same? Uh, I, th I think um, I think the, the there's a little more negativity around the pound, really more as it relates to policy, you know, potential changes in policy than than anything else. And you know what we've seen is, you know, of course we've seen banks and other institutions try to leave the UK as a result of some of these policies, and that's that's been weighing on on the currency. So uh, that that's a tougher call because we I also you know just given the euro. Uh, the various components of the euro and the, the issues that they're going, each of those pieces are going through, make it a little more, make it a tougher call for me, honestly. So I, I, I don't have a stronger view one way or the other pound euro. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. The yeah. uh, reason I ask, of course, is because uh, a lot of expats uh, uh, as clients, uh, uh, none of them still hold uh, pound sterling and they're waiting for the glory days to come back before right. they convert. Right. Well, and it hasn't happened for a long time and I don't see it happening for a long time. So uh, look, I, uh, I, I fully understand it. I've, you know, all of my Canadian assets, I've been waiting, you know, I've been waiting for this Canadian dollar to rally. Uh, and that, you know, hasn't done that for 15 years or something. So it's uh, every, everybody's waiting. Actually, everybody's waiting for the U S dollar to just sort of come down to earth and the yeah. rest of the global currencies appreciate that against that. And I think for that to happen, you know the U.S. is just have it has to be slower than everywhere else, and and I don't it just doesn't feel like there's a reason for the U.S. to slow at a faster pace than the rest of the world right now. It just doesn't, you know, maybe someday, but not right now. It doesn't feel just like not way. right now. Yeah. 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 And uh, last one we touched on it a little bit, but uh, geopolitical risks. I yeah I unfortunately I fear it gets worse. Um, you know, we're, we're already seeing it, you know, the uh, the the continued escalation of, of events in, in Gaza and then related to all the ancillary events around that. Of course, now the U.S. is dipping their toe a bit more into it and as they're working in, on counterattacks and the shipping lanes and trying to protect what's going on there. That's that's 
you know, it's just another added element. And the more the U.S. gets involved, the more the retaliation heats up uh, as a result of that. And I, I just think that leads to more and more conflict. Certainly, the, 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 the conflict in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, doesn't seem to be showing any signs of abating anytime soon. Um, and as a result of that, you know, supply constraints and such, you're seeing different formations take place with, you know, uh, between Russia and China. And of course, now you've got the election in, in Taiwan and, you know, China pushing back against that a little bit. So it feels to me that things are escalating rather than de-escalating. And, and that's, that's, a, that's probably my biggest fear. Yeah. Well, Bob, I, uh, I really, really appreciate uh, your insights on uh, on the world and uh, global equities, and uh, maybe we'll just call it the uh, world according to Bob. Uh, that's that's normally what they uh, talk about when I start talking is the world right. according to John. I, I but I'm off in my own little world a little bit. Yeah, so. we're all off in our own little worlds. You know, that's yeah. that's, that's the way it goes. Yeah. So uh, thanks so much. Really appreciate you taking the time with our clients. Well, thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it. A big thank you to Bob Swanson for being our guest today and giving us his insights on the past, present, and future of global equities. Our next planned podcast is for business owners and managers. It's a process we at Sauna Family Office have adopted to drive efficiencies in the running and oversight of our business. And our guest will be Kevin Armstrong, who is our coach. I know that you'll pick up nuggets of wisdom and find what Kevin has to say very useful. Hi, I'm Trevor Beggs from Sana Family Office, and thanks for listening to John Lawson and the Wealth Wisdom Podcast. Here are the necessary disclosures. Asante Capital Management is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. This material is provided for general information and is subject to change without notice. Every effort has been made to compile this material from reliable sources, However, no warranty can be made as to its accuracy or completeness. Before acting on any of the above, please make sure to see a professional advisor for individual financial advice based on your personal circumstances. The opinions expressed here are not necessarily those of Asante Capital Management. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Wealth Wisdom Podcast.